This evening's talk is the final one in a three-part series looking at the practice of hospitality, living a life that says, welcome. And we've been exploring this practice by considering three meals that Jesus ate with other people. And in the first week, we looked at how Jesus himself understood hospitality. Last week, we looked at how we could do hospitality, and we specifically considered the difference between entertainment and hospitality. And then this week, we're going to be thinking about the family of God. And if you are here um, and you haven't heard the first two weeks of the series, can I encourage you to go on the website and listen to those? Because it will make a bit more sense um, after tonight about what I am saying. It will kind of give you the full picture. And I'm not just saying that to bump my views and bump, bump my listens on the website. Honest. I don't think we actually can tell. Uh, it's good. It breeds competitiveness in the staff team, which is not very healthy. Um, but if you could do that, that would be great, because it would just give you a fuller picture of, uh, of what we've talk been talking about. And so tonight, we're going to be considering perhaps the most well-known meal that Jesus ate whilst he was on earth. We're going to be thinking about the Last Supper, and we're going to look at the account in Luke's Gospel. Um, so if you want to grab the sheet of paper that's at the end of your pews, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read Luke's account of the Last Supper. Father, thank you that you have brought us here together tonight as the family of God. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive and active and it transforms us. And we want to be open to hearing what you want to speak to us this evening. So give us hearts and minds that are receptive and attentive to you. Amen. So let's look at Luke um, chapter 22, verses 7 to 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs or furnished and make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. But I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. The practice of hospitality flows from our understanding of grace. As disciples, what we do for Jesus comes from who we understand we are in Jesus. What we do for Jesus is so linked to who we are in 
Jesus. And so much of our understanding, I think, as the family of God, as the body of Christ, so much of our understanding about who we are is found in the meal we've just read about and what it represents. Luke reminds us five times, if you look in that passage, he mentions five times that this meal is the Passover meal. The meal that was eaten the night before the Exodus when God liberated his people from slavery in Egypt. And when Jesus ate the Last Supper, he was fully aware that this meal he was eating with his disciples was a meal that looked back. It looked back to the Exodus. It looked back to the first Passover meal. But it was also a meal that Jesus knew as the Son of God was looking forward. It looked forward. It looked, looks forward to the banquet that is promised in Isaiah 25, the heavenly banquet. We, in eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth and the new creation, we, as followers of Jesus, if we put our trust in Jesus, in the new creation, we will sit for eternity and feast with God. That's pretty awesome. We will sit at the heavenly banquet in the new creation and sit and eat with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is pointing forward to that moment in the Last Supper. But he isn't just pointing forward to an eternal moment. He is also pointing forward to the next 24 hours. He's pointing forward to the next three days. He's looking forward to the cross Because the heavenly banquet where we will sit and eat and feast with God is only made possible because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So that eternal moment is only made possible by what Jesus was going to go through in the next three days. And that is all happening in this meal, this last supper that Jesus ate with his disciples. And when we eat together as the family of God. And that, by the way, is what communion is. Communion is a family meal. Now, it doesn't always feel like that because we have to queue for it. Um, And we kind of take these little tiny sips of wine and we eat a wafer, and that isn't much like any of the family meals that I've ever eaten. But it is. It is a family meal because we are reminding ourselves in it that we are the family, that we are the people of God, that our lives are defined by God's story and not by the stories of our culture. And we're going to eat together as the family of God at the end of the service. We're going to take communion together. We're going to have a family meal together tonight. And as we do that, there are some things going on in that meal Most of us exist in a very busy and hectic culture where success is the ultimate goal, where production is the ultimate goal. Well, when we come and we eat as the family of God, when we come and take communion, that meal reminds us that we can rest in the finished work of Christ. That's our story, not the story of being hectic and being stressed and striving. Our story is that we can rest in the finished work of Christ. And this meal tells us of that story. In a dissatisfied culture that is always striving for more and for more, 
This meal reminds us that because of the cross, we can know the peace and the joy of Jesus Christ. This meal reminds us that that is our story. In a fragmented culture where we are told over and over again that it's all about you, actually this meal reminds us that the story of God is that we here gathered, whether you like it or not, are the family of God. We belong to one another. And that's our story. And we're reminded of it again in this meal. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, Paul writes, because there is one bread, that actually means one loaf, because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share of the one bread. Now, if you've uh, been in the Church of England, in the Anglican Church for a while, or some other denominations, you'll recognize that verse, and you'll recognize it because it's part of the communion liturgy. It's part of the call and response. We who are many are one body because we all share in one bread. And you may have said that for years and years and years, particularly if you've been taking communion for a while. But I wonder if you've ever stopped and thought about what you are actually saying. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one. So when we eat the bread, when we eat this meal together, we are saying that we are one body. We are the family of God. So when we come and take communion, it isn't just a private individual moment between us and God. It's actually a prophetic corporate act that declares that in this place, for this body, we are adopted one to another We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is a powerful statement to a world that exists in a lot of fragmentation. We are saying in that moment, we are brothers and sisters. We are adopted as children of God. I think it's one of the most profound pictures of God's hospitality to us, which he makes possible in the work of his son. But also, it's not just the vertical, it's also the horizontal. It's our hospitality to each other. There was one thing recorded in scripture, one thing that Jesus left his disciples to do in remembrance of him. No, that thing, you've got one job, one job. One thing that Jesus left his disciples to do in remembrance of him and using those words in remembrance of him. And that was to eat together. Not to say things together, but to eat together. It's not say this in remembrance of me. It's do this in remembrance of me. Break bread Eat together, show hospitality to one another. Why? Because of what we've just talked about in terms of grace. Why? Because in the breaking of bread, we are reminded of who we are. And we constantly need reminding of who we are. We need reminding that our identity in Jesus is the most important thing. And when we break bread together, it reinforces that we are a community that's shaped by Jesus. We're a community that is shaped by the cross. Ordinary hospitality is key 
to who we are as the family of God. And if radically ordinary hospitality takes those who are strangers, those who are foreigners, those who are immigrants, and invites them to be neighbors, and then takes those who are neighbors and says, come on in to the family of God, then the family of God needs to be the beating heart of hospitality. Um, In his letters to the Corinthian church, Paul talks about something that we very, very rarely heard talked about in church. I don't think I've ever actually heard a sermon on it in nearly 30 years of being a Christian. Paul talks about church discipline. Um, We don't often talk about church discipline, Um, but it is definitely there in the New Testament. We find it in Paul's letters. Um, And in Corinthians, one of the things that Paul talks about is he talks about what you do as a church when somebody says they are a follower of Jesus and then they do something that clearly doesn't represent who Jesus is and continues to not be sorry about what they've done, so continues to be unrepentant. And Paul is writing to the Corinthian church saying, this is what you need to do if that happens. And he gives a very particular example in Corinthians chapter 5. It's about somebody who is sleeping with their father's wife, which is probably a very good example of where church discipline is important. Um, sleeping with his father's wife. And the thing that Paul says is, he talks, he talks a lot about the spiritual aspect of it, but he says there is one very concrete, very tangible sanction, piece of discipline, that you need to do as the church. And the one thing you need to do is you need not to eat with this person. In the early church, the most severe form of church discipline was to withdraw hospitality. That says something, doesn't it? The most severe form of sanction was to withdraw hospitality. And um, the writer Tim Chester, and I think he is saying this in a humorous way, but I think he's also saying this in a very serious way. He says, in our churches today, if we took the same approach to church discipline, would anyone notice that they were being disciplined if hospitality was withdrawn. That is, do we practice hospitality in such a way that if hospitality was no longer there, that it was withdrawn, would anybody actually notice? Would we notice its absence? I think it's 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 a good question. It's a challenging question to ask. As the family of God, we're called to model, and we've been looking at this over the last three weeks, this radical, ordinary hospitality to each other, to be a community that is shaped by grace. And when I talk about this type of hospitality, I'm not talking about institutionalized hospitality. There is a place for that, uh, but this kind of hospitality is not about programs or projects. It's not about rotors or responsibilities. It's about us all being hosts. Us all seeing that basic calling as a disciple to host others, to be hospitable. So it's great, and we do a lot at HTC, and it's a fantastic part of who we are as a community. We have church picnics, we have barbecues, we have rectory lunches. But actually, going back to the church discipline point, if we are to be a community where somebody would actually miss hospitality if we weren't doing it, then it needs to be more than the event. It needs to be a way of life. Come over for lunch. I have no idea what is in the fridge at all. Come over for lunch. 
Let's go for a walk around the common. We'll grab an ice cream. Do you fancy going for a coffee? Let's pray. Let's grab a few more people to come and join us. Just that routine, sometimes spontaneous, sometimes not, way of life that lives out grace, lives out mercy, lives out hospitality. And part of doing this is thinking about how the story of the cross, how grace shapes us and therefore shapes our hospitality as the family of God. And actually, just as importantly, how grace disrupts some of the other stories that we tell each other. Because I think constantly, as disciples, we, you know, we live in a noisy world, and there is the story of God that we want to be rooted in, but there's lots of other loud stories that, are, that, are, that, are, that grab our attention. And sometimes part of our discipleship is we need, to, we need to be still and listen for that quiet, small voice of grace that is trying to talk to us. Because grace, the story of the cross, speaks of commitment in the midst of transience. Grace speaks of commitment in the midst of transience. At his heart, what we see in the life of Jesus is somebody who spent time with people. I mean, it's really interesting. I was at theological college for a couple of years, and I kind of specialized would be a very wrong word to say. I did a lot of uh, study, particularly in mission, uh, in um, new forms of church, in church planting, in all that kind of stuff. That was a particular module I spent a long time doing. And there is tons, if you want to read on this, cultural hermeneutics, uh, church planting strategies, all different types of mission. That people, there's loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of books on this. But actually, when you boil it all down, it's about spending time with people. It really is. That is the very, the very basic of mi- the basics of mission and discipleship is spending time with people investing in people. And what I was thinking about this week is that that can be hard in a transient community. Here at HDC, we estimate, particularly in this service, we estimate that we have a turnover of a third of the congregation every year. Now, that isn't unusual for us. That is pretty standard amongst churches in this part of the country. A third of our congregation turnover every single year. And how do you do hospitality in a transient community? Because transients can encourage consumerism, entertainment, rather than contribution, which is hospitality. It's it's a a very human attitude, isn't it, to say, I'm only going to be here for a while, so I'm just going to get the most out of it, which can be, not always, but can be a consumer attitude. And in city life, particularly, I think, in London life, there's not just actual transience, there's also anticipated transience. So it's not just that we know we're actually going to move on in a month. Our mindset is, well, I could never afford to live around here long term, or I could never see myself here because my family's around there long term. So it's not I'm going to move in a month, but I know I'm moving in two to three years. So it's anticipated transience as much as actual transience. And what that can do to our, our framework when it comes to community and hospitality is that we hunker down. Uh, we're not always open to the new relationships because people are just going to move on. So we hunker down with an existing group of friends. Now, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to have really strong, rooted friendships at all. 
But actually, part of the gospel, part of grace, is to open ourselves up to the new, to welcome the stranger, whether they are with us for a week or whether they are with us for longer. We are a pilgrim people. That's part of our identity. But I think a brilliant question to ask, particularly when we exist in these transient places, is, Jesus, who for this season are you asking me to invest in? Lord, for this time, where do you want me to invest in new relationships, in new friendships? And where do you want to invest in existing ones? To make sure that we're not constantly just hunkering down with what we know because people move on. If the Lord has called you to HTC, he's not just called you to come to church on a Sunday. He's called you into a family And he's called you into a family that has a vision for hospitality, that has a vision to see every life bearing fruit for Jesus, which is a vision of fruitful discipleship, which is a vision of fruitful hospitality. Now, Jesus may have called you here. And by the way, if you're here, Jesus has called you here because you're here. It's great. Um, Jesus, he may have called you here for a month. He may have called you here for 25 years and you just don't know it yet. Um, But however long he's called you here for... He's called you here for a purpose, not just to sit in a pew. He's called you here for a purpose because that's what he does. And part of that purpose is about hospitality. Part of that purpose is about you growing to be more like Jesus in your relationships and how you do life. That's grace. Grace, the story of the cross, also speaks of vulnerability and dependency in a culture of self-sufficiency. Grace speaks of vulnerability and dependency in a culture of self-sufficiency. You don't have to have it all together in church, but you do have to be together. And so often we think it's the other way around. We feel that we have to have it together so we can be together. And that's not grace. That's generally a mask. Um, As we looked at last week, there is a freedom in doing hospitality just as we are. Not performing, doing hospitality in the way that you are made. Uh, One of the things that um, uh, somebody asked me, I think it was after the last service or the one before, it's a brilliant question. They were like, what about introverts? It's a great question. It's a fantastic question. Um, I'm kind of, I think I've got more introverted the longer I've worked for the church, Um, but I'm... Probably not a good thing. I hate people. Um, No, Um, and that's a terrible stereotype of introverts, sorry. Um, 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 But hospitality, God has called us to be hospitable. God has also made some of us introverts and some of us extroverts, which means that if you are an introvert, God has called you to be hospitable, and if you are an extrovert, God has called you to be hospitable. So it works both ways. It's brilliant. Um, And it's actually just about finding the way that you can do this that is sustainable. Because you will have different rhythms and different routines depending on how you are wired and how you need to retreat and refresh yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just about knowing yourself so that you can practice 
the rhythm of hospitality um, better? It's a really good question to ask and, and, and kind of get to know yourself better to know how you can practice that. Um, the other thing is that the picture of hospitality is always having to be the crazy loud kind of place where you go and have big, kind of everybody around the table lunches. That is one picture of hospitality. But sometimes what's really healing in people's lives is the one-on-one -on -one conversation that goes pretty deep, that cuts through the small talk. And in, in my experience, some of my more introverted friends are utterly brilliant at that. They're, they're very good at just cutting through the small talk and getting to the heart of the matter. And that can be such a gift in hospitality. Hospitality allows space for God's spirit to move because in hospitality, we feel like we're known. We're not anonymous. And it can be easy in London, and it can be easy in a relatively large church like this, to feel anonymous. And one of my questions for you this evening is, outside of this setting, and outside of your household where you live, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you live with housemates or a spouse, who are you doing discipleship with? Who are you walking this journey with? And actually, if you're married, who are you doing this journey with who isn't your spouse? And if you live in a household, who are you that's housemates? Who are you doing this journey with who aren't your housemates if they're Christians? We all need people who are on this journey with us, that hold us accountable, that ask us the good questions. And who are you doing that stuff with? I think here at HTC, one of the best places to grow in our discipleship is connect groups. And can I just encourage you that if you're not in a connect group, to, to get in one. <laughs> They're great. They're great. They're good things. They're good places. Um, and if you want to chat more about that, come and find me or come and find Jamie um, after the service and we'll chat to you. Because sometimes actually it's really important to have those smaller, what, the, what, the, what scripture calls those oikos places, and oikos is the word in Greek for an extended family, those places to come and to find hospitality. So um, over this last couple of months, I've been having a pretty terrible time, if I'm honest. I lost a very close friend and ex-housemate to brain cancer um, a, a few weeks ago, and she was diagnosed and she died within about 40 days. It was a profound shock. And there's some other stuff in terms of relationships that has just not gone how I thought it might go. And in those times, so, you know, the, the last kind of couple of months for me have been months of loss and grief and tears and just all that mess that happens in those places. And what has been incredibly important is to be able to express that stuff in a safe place. Because do you know what? This is a slight segue. But do you know what? I think that there is a myth that grief and loss and disappointment are the things that rob us of our faith. They're not. What robs us of our faith is the shame that happens when we don't express grief and loss and disappointment. When we feel shameful that as a Christian, we feel sad or something hasn't happened, well, I can't be a good Christian, because if I was a good Christian and I properly trusted in Jesus, I wouldn't be feeling grief or loss or disappointment or pain. And that's not true. And the reason why I know it's not true is because you look at Scripture and it's not true. But we can get ourselves in those places and then shame descends. And that, that is what keeps us in a place where we can't find hope. 
and we get stuck in bitterness and disappointment. And actually, one of the most important things I think that hospitality does is it creates safe spaces where we can be vulnerable. And when life is, I'm just going to say it, a bit crap, because it's been a bit crap for me over the last couple of months, when life is, when there is death and there is disappointment and there is pain and there is loss, those safe spaces are a really important place where we can show hospitality to each other and we can be vulnerable. And that is part of our journey of discipleship. And if you are here this evening and that is something that you are experiencing, you are in a pain, place of pain or in a place of grief or in a place of loss, and quite a few of us probably will be, then can I just say we would love to pray for you at the end of the service. Don't run away. Don't sit in your pew. Come and receive prayer. One of the greatest gifts that I've had over the last couple of months is people's living rooms. I've sat in a few living rooms over the last few months, and I've talked with people, and I've eaten with good friends, and people have prayed for me. And it is the greatest gift of grace, the greatest gift of grace. And finally, grace is taking up your cross in a culture of comfort. Grace is taking up your cross in a culture of comfort. One of the questions that often arises when we talk about hospitality in the family of God is what about boundaries? What about boundaries? It's a good question. Um, it's a question that a few people have emailed me about when they've been engaging with this sermon series. Do I just invite everybody into my house? Um, where's, the, where's the boundary? Where's the boundary? Um, and I don't have any definitive answers, but as I've been thinking this through, what I do think is that the factory setting in my life is comfort. At the end of the day, if there's a default setting, it will be that I want to do what makes me feel comfortable. So there are times in our lives when we talk about the importance of boundaries and what we actually mean is we don't want people impeding on our comfort. They're not boundaries, they're barriers, they're walls. Um, we set our life out in a certain way and we don't want that interrupted or disrupted. And actually the meal that we're going to eat in a moment is, is a marker, is a symbol in our life together that Jesus resets the factory setting. <laughs> he asks us to take up our cross and be uncomfortable because that's part of being a disciple. However, big however, however, there have been other times and there will continue to be in my life where I have put a clear and wise boundary in place around my mental health, my emotional health, my spiritual health, and certainly when I used to do some work overseas, my physical safety. There were particular boundaries for my physical safety. And those are good boundaries, and they're important boundaries, and they're wise boundaries. And actually, part of the process of discernment and wisdom as a Christian is, is working out, I think, what are boundaries and what are barriers? What's about my comfort, and actually what is about wise and good things that I need to put in place so that I am healthy? And there's no easy answers to that, because for everybody, they may look a little bit different. But the great thing is that we have a heavenly father who says, if you need wisdom, ask me, and I will give it to you. And not only do we have a heavenly father, we have a family who we can soundboard things off. We can talk to people in our connect group. I'm thinking about doing this. Or what do you think about this? Does this sound wise to you? Um, there are leaders in the church that you can do that with as well. 
And that creates a place where actually we can work out where is Jesus calling us to take up our cross, to dismantle our culture of comfort, and where in this place of hospitality are there some things that we need to put in place to be wise, to be wise, to be creative, to be accountable, but also to be wise. Now, um, I'm going to finish there because we are going to eat together now. We're going to have a family meal. But before I do, um, there's just a couple of things, particularly if you are in a connect group. um, I know that in finishing this kind of sermon series, the questions probably won't stop. People may want to discuss this a bit more. There's two books. Can I encourage you, if you're in a connect group, you want to think about this a bit further, we'll try and link these on the website as well. There is A Meal with Jesus, which is a book by Tim Chester. He's somebody I've referenced quite a lot over the last few weeks. But there's also this one, which is brilliant, which is called A Place at the Table uh, by Chris Sayer. It's designed as a Lent book, but I think you could, or an Advent book, but you could do it at any time of year. And that's 40 Days of Solidarity with the Poor. And that's also absolutely brilliant. So can I just recommend both those books? Come and grab them and have a look if you want. So we're going to take communion now. We're going to eat together. And uh, we are eating together in the presence of God. Um, It reminds us as we come and take this family meal that this is what we are created to do. Eat with our Savior. Eat with our family. But of course... We don't want that table to be an exclusive table. So as we do this, what we're also remembering is that we want others to come and join the feast. We want to invite others to come around the table. So this is an act of eating together as a family, but also remembering who's not here and who we want to come and join us around the table. So we do both um, as we live a life of welcome. And uh, can I pray for us um, before Jago comes up? And can I just encourage you again that when you come up to receive communion, we would love, as we eat together, I think food and blessing and prayer, they're all intertwined. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. If there is anything going on in your life at the moment that you would like somebody to pray with you for, don't scuttle back to your pew straight after communion. Don't run back. Um, stay around, stay at the sides, and, and we will pray with you. And we just love, we would love to do that. We'd love to do that. Um, let me pray, and then we're going to eat together. Father, thank you for this meal that we can come and enjoy because of the work of your Son. Father, thank you that we have an eternal hope that in the new creation we will sit and feast with you. And that brings joy to our hearts. And Lord, we thank you that this table is not an exclusive table, that you want all to gather round. And Lord, we remember those tonight who are not here, who we would love to be here, who we would love to invite around your table to come and eat with you. So Lord, bring those people to mind. And in a sense, Lord, we want to pray for them. That just as you say, come, taste and see, that they would come and taste and see, Jesus, that you are good. And Lord, where our hearts need more of you, Jesus, where we need to be filled by your spirit, where we need you to come and speak your love and your grace over areas of our life that are hurting or difficult, where we feel loss and disappointment and pain, Jesus, we thank you that you do that. And may we take the opportunity as brothers and sisters in Christ this evening to pray with each other. Lord, that's the kind of community we want to be, one that intercedes for each other. So Lord, as we come and eat, let us also pray. 
Amen.